Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you. It's been a while since I was here last, and it's been a while since I had an invitation to become a pastor from the pulpit. Thank you, Rick. (laughs) But Rick, one little wee piece of counsel. Generally, don't make the invitation until after the preacher has preached. You may feel differently in 30 minutes. Nice to know that I receive commendation from my good friend Sam as well. Thank you, Sam. Someone who I deeply esteem and love, and so that's, uh, that was nice to hear as well. God bless you, brother. Well, I want to welcome you, or I want to greet you, sorry, in the name of the Lord. On behalf of the entire fellowship, in my role as our national president, I get to ch- really crisscross the country, not so much lately, as you can imagine, but on any given Sunday, I'm generally in a different con- uh, church around the country from British Columbia through the Atlantic area, and I have the joy of bringing greetings to you from your national fellowship family, which you're, you may or may not be aware, but the national office is here in Guelph. So I live just up in Fergus and I'm coming into Guelph very often. So this was a real easy visit this morning coming down to be with you. But I want to greet you in the name of the Lord. You are part of a much larger family than you may even be aware of. You're part of an association of small group of fellowship churches. You're also part of a region, the Feb Central region, some 277 churches. And you're part of a national body, a member of, a, of an association of churches that number currently about 508 churches. But that changes every week, it seems. And we together, collectively, are on mission together and doing a number of things that we at the national office seek to come alongside of our churches to fulfill some of those missional dreams and initiatives with sending missionaries globally or involved in uh, relief and development and justice issues through our FAIR program, our FAIR department, of which you were very involved in one of our projects just last year. And I want to thank you as a church family for your involvement with our uh, cyber sex Uh, a fair uh, uh, justice project where we were seeking to bring children in Cebu and Manila, Philippines, out of uh, horrible situations where they were being abused through uh, cyber sex trafficking. And uh, Crestwood got very involved in that project. We were able to raise well over, uh, just around short of a quarter of a million dollars of which you raised much of that. And, uh, and, uh, uh, some significant ministry was done in the Philippines as a result. So thank you. Thank you for that. I have got some uh, information. You're also involved in a francophone church plant in the city of Montreal. You've been praying for, uh, for the church planter Benoit for many, many years. And also our chaplaincy ministry. We have grown in the last six years from 27 to 110 chaplains. It's our fastest growing ministry currently. And we have chaplains all over Canada in 14 different areas. And uh, we just praise God for the ministry that these chaplains are doing as an extension of the local church in many areas that we as churches and pastors can't walk into these closed communities any longer. Pastor Sam can't just walk into a police station and seek to share uh, a chaplain is invited, and Sam actually serves on my advisory council with our chaplaincy, so he's very involved in that ministry. I have just a little bit of material that I want to bring your attention to that's at the, uh, uh, out in the foyer, and I'd love you to pick that up. Our current FAIR, which again, FAIR is our Development, Relief, and Justice uh, Department, our current FAIR project is Weathering the Storm. It's allowing uh, our missionaries to have the support funds to come alongside of people who are being affected in significant ways because of the COVID problem. I mean, the reality is we are struggling with it as a nation in a first 
nation, but in many third world nations, you can only exponentially increase the struggles. And so we are seeking to raise some funds to help some of our Colombian missionaries who are caring for refugees coming in from Venezuela, which has just been a country that has been horribly or is going through a horrible time, or day laborers in Pakistan who, if they don't work that day for a very small amount of money, their family doesn't eat, and our missionaries are coming alongside of them. Uh, a ch- uh, uh, an orphanage in Honduras, the explosion in Beirut was just about four months ago. Uh, 2,000 people were killed. Uh, 6,000 were injured. Tens of thousands are homeless, and we have three missionary families in Beirut who are seeking to help them. But they need the funding for that, and so you might want to pick that up. There's also a little booklet about what our missionaries are doing around the world, Fellowship International Missionaries, related to COVID and some really wonderful, heartwarming stories. I also have a number of copies of uh, one of our uh, national magazines, Thrive, and I'd encourage you to pick that up. And then the last thing I have there, other than just a booklet about some of our missionaries, if you want something to be praying for Fellowship International Missionaries, there's a booklet there for you to pick up. But then there's something called the Religious Freedom Watch. It's the fellowship's attempt to try to inform our churches related to the plight that we have as a nation related to religious freedom, of which the topic I'm speaking of today. A very sobering talk of it. But for the last couple of years, we have been sending out this to our churches, to our leadership. I don't know how, if it's trickled down to you, you can go online to www.fellowship.ca and get it uh, in, a, in, in a digital format. But it's generally articles on current stuff written by fellowship people, lawyers, pastors, leaders, and the things that we need to be praying into with our country. And uh, that is what I'm going to be addressing this morning. But I've brought a number of those copies as well. I encourage you to pick that up. Well, let's just ask the Lord to bless our time as we enter in a time which we benefit from his word. Let's pray together. Father, we have sung praises to you. Thank you for our worship team. So ably brought us before you. We just submit and surrender our hearts to you, Father, allowing your spirit to minister. And as your word is opened, we know this is an opportunity for you to speak to us collectively as a church family, but also individually as your children. And there is something you wish to speak to us. I, I'm, I'm convinced of that, Father. I have no idea what it is per, with each person. But I know, Father, that you wish to apply something from your word to your children this morning. And so, Father, help us to hear, to allow your spirit to minister, to encourage, to inspire, to rebuke, to challenge us that we might apply something this morning from what we've heard, for we do this knowing that it will bring glory to you, Father, but we do it because it knows we know it will bring good to us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Well, I'm going to be in Romans chapter 13 in the next few minutes, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go there, but we're going to just talk about a few things before we get there. Who wrote this? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Charles Dickens in The Tale of Two Cities. This past year has been, in many respects, the best of times and the worst of times. I can tell you there have been significant uh, missional advances by virtue of this COVID year in significant ways. But it's also been the worst of times. As our nation, uh, in some headlong feat, is seeking to become more and more 
a secular nation. The secular drift in our nation has been true. We've been witnessing this for now decades, but it seems to be increasing at a breathtaking, breathtaking speed. And it's this what I want, I want to address. This is a sobering message. I warn you up front. It's a word I want to share with our churches, any church that will have me, because I'm concerned, as I know many of you are for our nation. And so we go to God's word for, for inspiration. We go to God's word for guidance. And we start by going to Romans chapter 12, verse 12, which we read, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Three subjects, hope, affliction, prayer. Three actions, joyfulness, patience, faithfulness. And I want to take a peek at each of these three actions and these subject matters, these three subjects, in the next few moments, in the context of our current landscape as a nation, the country of Canada, where hope is fleeting, Affliction is ever-present, and prayer is underutilized. We learned very recently an Ipso Reid poll, who polled many, many thousands of Canadians, and they discovered, this is very recent, as a result of the eight months in our COVID, 37% of Canadians characterized their lives as, and I quote, desolate. Let that sink. 37% desolate. That is a significant word. That's not a little word. That is a word that is pregnant with meaning, desolate. Almost 40% of Canadians are struggling, significantly struggling as a result of COVID. Walker Percy is arguably one of the greatest American literary giants of the 20th century, and nobody knows his name. On his death in May of 1990, Time magazine wrote of Walker Percy, Name another voice in American writing that is as beguiling and civilized as Walker Percy. He was a medical doctor who in his mid-40s began to write really dense philosophical papers for journals that hardly any of us ever read, but he did write six popular novels that really made him famous. His writing consistently tackled the bleak and hopeless theme of the 20th century. His hope stemmed from an event that occurred later in his life, when he was converted to Christianity. Although his writing was brilliant, it was compelling and persuasive, his hopeful, orthodox Christian views had become the minority view by the mid-20th century in a century of war and carnage. It was no longer in vogue. And so the literary establishment, although they could not ignore his brilliance despite their attempt to do so, they placed his consistent narrative of hope well behind the bleakness among those literary giants they all loved in Hemingway, Steinbeck, and Miller. We live in a culture that is increasingly close to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In one of Percy's essays, Lost in the Cosmos, he targets one of his favorite themes that he wrote about consistently, regularly, over and over again in his books and his, his philosophical journals. That humanity is an orphan 
lost in the cosmos. That modern humanity resembles a castaway who's lost on a deserted island. They find a bottle with a message in, and they open up the message, and it's in a foreign language they don't understand. Or a prisoner who is in his prison cell, an isolation cell, straining to hear the code of a tap, tap, tap from a prisoner in the next cell beside him, but he doesn't understand Morris code. He hears it, unable to understand it. Walker Percy conceded that the hopeful message of Christianity may no longer be the prevalent view among the media elites, but by no means that that denigrate nor devalue the importance of the Christian message of hope in Jesus Christ. In fact, Christian novelists and Christian teachers, Christian nurses, Christian lawyers, Christian salespeople, Christian clergy, Christians in general need, because of the bleakness of our age, need to be vigilant, regularly sharing this message of hope found only in Jesus Christ. It is the only message that will bring true satisfaction to the hungry hearts of orphan souls in the 21st century. Hope in the Lord is the foundation upon which we find and sustain our joy. And without him, that will never be sustained. Any other foundation ensures a shaky, shifting foundation resulting in disappointment and doubt. Romans 12.12 says, Be joyful. In hope. And we joyful ones share this hope to a world that is increasingly closed to the good news that Jesus saves. What is Paul's word on that? Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of this good or hopeful news about, J- about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. Unashamed, we advance the gospel. Because it brings hope to hopeless sinners. You know, in the early months of COVID last spring, I put a moratorium on all my staff across the country to not phone our churches to ask for funds, for very good things, missionaries, chaplains, fair appeals, to just stop, a moratorium. And for three months, all we did is phone our pastors, phone our churches to ask, how are you doing? How are you coping? How's the church family coping in the midst of these very, very unusual, uncertain days of COVID? And what we were so encouraged by was story after story after story after story amongst our 500 plus churches of people coming to Christ in unusual ways. I can remember talking to the pastor at Plesseville, Quebec. Its fame is it's the maple, maple syrup capital of Canada, but a little town in just southeast of Montreal, a couple hours. And a police officer five hours away from that area had been listening to them online. They were streamlining their services. And after a number of weeks of listening, and he would never have gone to a church never going to do a church. This police officer surrendered his life to Christ. And Carl was asking me to pray for, for this police officer who they were going to disciple as a result of his conversion. Again, 
Remote discipleship, five hours away. We heard story after story of that and transformation. So many that I shared in my weekly blog that I send out to anybody who wants to get it. I shared story after story, 10 different weeks of stories of conversion stories. Our entire fall um, um, Thrive magazine is given to all of these stories. You can go online and look at and listen and read all of these different stories. We put out a statement of hope last April to tell Canadians, your hope is found in nothing less than Jesus Christ, your Savior and your Lord. We just wanted to just declare that afresh to a lot of Canadians who were struggling with hope last spring. We've appointed this last year, we thought, things would get awful quiet at the national office with COVID. It has been one of our busiest years. As believers, as Christians within our fellowship churches, it seems the trajectory of their careers and the calling on their life has changed as a result of COVID. We have appointed eight new missionaries this last year. 17 new chaplains have been appointed. For us, that is a recruitment boom. That's a bumper crop. As believers are recognizing that hope is only found in Christ, and they want to share that hope globally or elsewhere in Canada. So we are to be hopeful with a hope that is joyful, Paul says in Romans 12.12. But he then says in Romans 12.12, be patient in affliction. In the uh, ESV and the KJV and the ASV, it translates that phrase, be patient in tribulation. In the NLT, be patient in trouble. What it's saying that in the context of so much hope we, that we have in Christ, you're going to know affliction and trouble. Jesus actually promises it. You will know trouble. Tribulation, if you're one of my children. We live in troubling times. We are living in a time of fervent secularism, a secularism that is seeking to sanitize society of, of faith or any resemblance or remembrance of faith sanitizing it in through legislation and through the media and so on and so forth. Our culture is increasingly closed to the views, the values, and beliefs of not just Christianity, but all faith groups. And so-called woke warriors and critical theorists seek to crawl back the religious freedom rights of law-abiding Canadians. This is new for Canada. Although Canada was never a Christian nation, it has been foundationally a nation that was molded by Judeo-Christian, uh, a Judeo-Christian heritage. In fact, in September of 19, uh, 1864, the, fathers, the Canadian fathers of Confederation were talking about nationhood, and they agreed that they would call the new nation Canada. But they were not in agreement related to its designation. Some thought we should call ourselves a republic, but we thought the Queen in England might be actually a little bit upset with us calling ourselves a republic. We thought some of the fathers thought we should call ourselves the Kingdom of Canada. We thought our cousins to the south might get a little upset with us referring to ourselves as a kingdom. And so they decided to retire for the evening. And Sir Leonard Tilly, who was representing New Brunswick, who on his gravestone is chiseled, his trust was in Jesus. In the morning, of the next slate of meetings, he woke up and he did what he did every morning. He read his Bible. And he came to Psalm 72, verse 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. And Tilly was convinced that Canada should be a dominion under God. And all the delegates agreed. And we've been that forevermore. 
Our nation became a dominion of the dominion of Canada, and over the east window of the peace tower are chiseled in the stone, he shall have dominion from sea to sea. Canada really never truly experienced Christendom, but our nation's foundation was shaped and molded certainly by Judeo-Christian ethics. Up until the 1950s, if you were learning English as a child in one of the schools in Ontario, they were using the Bible. Times have changed. Some espouse that that kind of notion in our nation is long gone. The question needs to be asked, when did it change? And some espouse that it changed in 1982. The year Parliament approved the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The date Canada's Christian heritage drifted and revealed a new progressive societal trajectory. And for almost 40 years, we have lived with charter values while Christian values have quietly been forgotten. Now, I'm no way suggesting that the charter, the Canadian charter, is bad. It's good. And it is one of the reasons we are the envy of the world and so many people want to come and live in Canada. The UN, since 1994, has said Canada is one of the most preferred nations in the world. But for more than three decades of legislation, this legislation has swiftly removed even the tip of the hat to our past Judeo-Christian ethic. That's... uh, Now, as I mentioned, Canada is not a, 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 it's never been a nation that was so inundated that we would refer to as Christendom. And Christendom, quite frankly, is not a really good thing. When the state takes over the church, that's generally not a very good thing. But there is this indifference towards the Christian view and worldview that is move from indifference to what I refer to as hostility. In three decades, the ideological shift is unmistakable. School prayer was banned in 1988. Abortion without legislative protection was instituted in 1988. Gay marriage was institutionalized in 2005 through Bill C-38. Doctor-assisted suicide was legalized on May 30, 2016, with further very progressive revisions being debated by by our parliament currently in Bill C-7 with plans to legislate it as quickly as December 18th of this year. That's what Justice Lametti wants. Non-binary transgender expression is enshrined in our federal human code since June 2017 through Bill 16. Recreational use of weed was legalized in July of 2018. Our current parliament is also debating conversion therapy practice in Bill C-6. And there are grave concerns amongst leaders, Christian leaders, and other religious leaders of other faiths across Canada related to this bill. For it will affect the way pastors can counsel or Christian counselors can counsel. And Christians having religious freedoms crawl back as a result of this bill is without a doubt. So the question becomes, what is our response? What is the response for the church? Charter values rather than Christian values are reshaping our nation. Individual rights continue to trump religious rights over and over again. We go and we lobby government. We intervene 
with really sharp lawyers, Christian lawyers at the Supreme Court. We'd lose battle after battle after battle these last, this last decade, and it's quite disheartening. Romans 12.12 says, be joyful in hope, patient, patient in affliction. How are Christians to protest what should, what should characterize our civic discord? What can we do to stem the secular tide in our nation? Well, the Apostle Paul gives some guidance in Romans chapter 13, and I encourage you to go there. It gives us some good counsel about how we should behave as believers. Now, in the context of this book, Romans chapter 1 through 11 basically is sharing how you can have a right relationship with God. Then beginning in chapter 12, the first half of, half of chapter 12, verses, 12 uh, verses 3 through verse 13 of Romans 12, it speaks of how we can have proper relationships within the family of God. Starting in verse 14 to verse 21 of chapter 12, it speaks of our having a proper relationship with those outside of the family of God, and he even mentions our enemy. How do you relate to your enemy? But starting in chapter 13, following the same theme, Paul directs us to civil authorities. What is our obligation? What is our responsibility of God-fearing people in? How are we to behave with those who have been given civil authority over ourselves in the church? And in verse 1, Paul says it bluntly. Everyone, everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. As children of God, we are, we are commended, commanded to submit to civil authorities. We don't submit to those whose legislation is God-honoring or we like it. There are no qualifiers. There are no conditions to this command. We are to submit. Submission. And the reason for that submission, Paul goes on, is because no authority has been placed on anyone except established by God. And who are we to second guess whom God places in authority? The Lord has even used evil people and evil leaders and evil nations to accomplish his plans. As difficult as that is to contemplate. Verse 2 of Romans 13 makes it clear that those who rebel against civil authorities are rebelling against God. God. And they will be punished. In fact, verse 3 and verse 4 goes on to say that the primary purpose that God intends for government is to restrain evil and to punish wrongdoers, and to commend and bless those who do good. Those who pursue good will discover that God's servant, and that is what Paul uses in reference to the government. He refers to the government as God's servant. Think about that for a moment with the guys we got in Ottawa. They're serving the Lord. The government will honor those who who are law-abiding. But those who do wrong, verse 3 says, they will fear God's servant and will be punished. Verse 5 of Romans 13 emphasizes that we need to submit as a means to maintain a clear conscience. 
We don't just do it so we'll have a clear conscience. We, we submit to those civil authorities because it's the right thing to do. It's what God expects us to be, how he expects us to behave. And then lastly, in verse 6, Romans 13, it tells us to pay your taxes. I love to skip over that one really quickly. Don't know why that one had to be thrown in there. But Jesus even said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Even though you dislike the current government, possibly that's true for you. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you are very happy with the current government. You must submit to God's servant. In fact, three times in six verses, the civil authorities are referred to as God's servant. God's servant, whether they recognize it or not. And so we pay our taxes. Verse 7 ends by saying, and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Whether we agree with the government's legislative agenda, whether we agree with the lifestyle or the beliefs of those politicians who are there in Ottawa or in Toronto representing us, we are to follow these three behaviors. Romans 13, verse 1, submit. Romans 13, verse 6, pay your taxes. Romans 13, verse 7, be respectful of those who are in authority. And then Paul goes on in 1 Timothy 2, 2 to say this. Pray this way for, God, for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peacefully and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. We are to pray. We are to pray for our leaders. And I must admit, sometimes that's been very difficult for me. Our current prime minister, I often end up praying for his wife and children because I struggle with him. Oh, Lord, help Sophie to live with that guy. Is that disrespectful? Possibly. But we need to pray. Pray for our leaders. Four behaviors we're supposed to do as devoted followers of Christ. Now, the question becomes this. But what if my civic leader tells me to stop doing something God tells me to do? Stop doing that. Yeah, yeah, but this tells me that's what I'm supposed to do. No, stop it. Stop doing that. What is your response? Are you to submit? Or are you to follow the example of the apostles John and Peter in Acts chapter 4 who were commanded by Jewish leaders, stop teaching in the name of Christ in verse 18. And then in Acts chapter 5, John and Peter are brought before the Sanhedrin and to the high priest who forbade them once again to speak in Jesus' name. Stop! Verse 28 and 29. Their response in verse 29? We must obey God rather than any human authority. When governing authorities tell us not to do something God tells us to do, we obey God, not man. We obey God, not man. Secondly, if a civic authority tells me to do something that God tells me not to do, you must do this. I can't do that as a Christian. I can't do that. You must do this. You will do this. Submit. I can't. What is my response? Do I submit? Do I obey? Or do I follow the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Bendigo, who were told in Daniel chapter 3, verse 15, These three young Jewish boys were commanded to bow to a golden image, which would have violated the second commandment, of course, and they would not. And they bravely faced a fiery consequence. 
So whether the demand is to do something God doesn't permit or not do something God asks you to do, the action is the same for a believer. I choose civil disobedience, and I obey God rather than man. However, I want to add something very quickly. Like John and Peter, I disobey respectfully. Respectfully. Daniel was respectful. We learn in Daniel chapter 1 verse 18 that he asked permission of the king not to defile himself with the king's rich food. The very act of asking permission is an inference of respect. So we disobey respectfully. Secondly, when compelled by civic authorities to do something God does not permit, we are to act like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I need to be prepared to resist and also be prepared to accept the consequences, which possibly may be a fiery punishment. A couple of years ago, I appointed a fellowship chaplain in uh, Quebec. I received from her a police check. All our chaplains have to go through a police check. I received a police check from her, unlike any other police check I have ever received with any of our chaplains or any of our missionaries. She had a, um, yeah, she had a record of civil disobedience. Years before, she had been an individual who was at an abortion clinic who was seeking to impede clients from going into the abortion clinic and was arrested and did jail time. So I would only add that submitting to civil authorities, we are not necessarily to do it in silence. Submission does not mean never speaking up about our civil authorities who are violating biblical principles. Daniel rebuked three kings. Try that. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. We are to speak up. We're called to be activists. We are to sign petitions, send letters and emails, march in lawful, nonviolent demonstrations. Whatever encourages reform without violence, this is what we are called to as devoted followers of Christ. We are called to activism, to speak out respectfully in the spirit of Jesus. Always remembering that our government authorities, our government officials, are not the enemy. In fact, they're the mission field. Following the Edict of Worms, which was just a big church ecclesiastical meeting, Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, Martin Luther was was called a heretic. All his books were to be collected and burned. And Prince Frederick secretly ushered Luther to his castle, the Wartburg Castle. It was a lonely time for Luther. He had been ushered there because his life was in jeopardy. He was suffering from illnesses, insomnia, and yet he energetically continued to write uh, a dozen books. He, He translated the entire New Testament from Latin into German in a number of just months. And he wrote many letters to many individuals, to many friends. And we have one of these letters from a friend named Spalatin. Martin Luther writes this. Now is the time to pray with our might against Satan. He is plotting an attack on Germany. And I fear God will permit him because I am so indolent in prayer. The final response to this growing secularization of our nation, this growing sentiment against biblical values, is not to retreat in hopeless idleness, but to 
to, to intentionally pursue fervent prayer for our nation. Romans 12, 12 tells us to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The 17th century novelist and poet John Donne once told the story of a group of Spanish sailors who were in the, floating towards the New World and they were sailing into the great headwaters of the Amazon River, so large that to their eyes it looked like just a continuation of the Atlantic Ocean. They didn't realize they were going into the largest body of freshwater in the world. They thought they were still in a very salty Atlantic Ocean. Many of the sailors, they had run out of water. Many of the sailors were dying of thirst. They never thought to plunge their buckets into the largest body of fresh water to, to satiate their thirst because they thought it was salty and it would kill them. And they never lifted any water out of the Amazon. And many of the sailors died of thirst. I think this scene of dying of thirst while this ship is in the world's largest body of fresh water, is actually a perfect metaphor for our own age. A society thirsty for meaning, dying of thirst, spiritually speaking, but headstrong in their refusal to receive their Savior. Like other favored nations, we got this great as a nation because of the preeminent Christian foundation that our nation pursued and embraced. And it flourished in our nation for the first hundred years. Christian mission is still floating. Local churches are all over the map in Canada. Everywhere in Canada, the Christian mission is still around, but millions would rather die of thirst, spiritually speaking, rather than drink from the living water. And we need to take Luther, Martin Luther's advice and declaration to pray to be faithful in prayer, as Paul refers to it in Romans 12, 12. It was 100 years ago when the center block of the parliament buildings was reconstructed after the great fire of February 1916. On July 2nd, 1917, the then Prime Minister, Sir Robert Borden, dedicated the grand new center block. The Peace Tower, which is the preeminent peace in the center block, that beautiful tower that is now scaffold as they do renovations. It became the vibrant symbol of our Christian democracy and our Canadian values. In the construction, there were scripture verses inscribed, chiseled into the beautiful blocks of the peace tower. There are ten, at least ten Bible verses in the peace tower and in the blocks memorial chamber. Scriptures carved in stone, permanent reminders that we can all find hope in the Lord, all accessible for Canadians to see. And I well imagine there are MPs today who would love to see those verses chiseled out. So politically incorrect. Charter values have replaced Christian values. I suspect that during this current renovation, you go online, I went online, and they don't refer to it just to a renovation of the Peace Tower. They call it a cultural rehabilitation. That somehow our history needs to be rehabilitated. Listen, that's just government bureaucratic talk saying we're going to get rid of the Bible verses. And any semblance of our past that has been so bad to our nation. These are different days. 
the largest of the 53 carillon bells that ring across Ottawa each day. The largest is 10,000 kilograms. It's so big, they gave it a name and dedicated it. They call it the Bourbon. And inscribed in the metal of the bell is Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to men. And I imagine there are MPs who would love to melt down that bell. Because it's a scripture verse. Are we to be dissuaded? No. Like that Bourbon, that bell, we need to remain loud and clear with the gospel, which is the only hope for our nation. Displaying Jesus through our lives and through our churches in the spirit of Christian love, doing it so brightly and so winsomely that people will be drawn to the Savior. I encourage each and every one of you to do as Paul has said, be faithful in prayer like you've never been for our nation. Praying fervently, intentionally for revival in our nation. And I want to start that by having you join me in praying a prayer. I encourage you to stand with me. And I have on the screen a prayer that I'd like us to repeat together. Will you do that with me? Let's follow together, starting here. Repeating with me, Father, renew and embolden the church in Canada to take its rightful place in our nation so that our nation might take its rightful place in the world. Father, help us, your children, to be salt and light in our country. Enable your children to be examples of your grace, mercy, and love. Our nation's greatest need is spiritual renewal. Father, our plea is that you renew your church, chasten it, revive it again. May your bride become a radiant influence for godliness in our blessed nation. Bend us. Break us. Do whatever necessary to bring your glory to our shores. For your glory and your great good, in Jesus' name, amen. And so, Father, we take this verse to be joyful in hope, patient in the afflictions that we will face, and be ever faithful in prayer for our nation in fresh and new ways. Unlike we have ever prayed before, help us, Father to pray that your will would be done here on Canada as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.